I saw on BBC News last night that there was air raid sirens over Kyiv. What what happened overnight? Are you all all right? Uh, yes, but we actually have these air raids regularly and uh, just not so many in last days than before. In fairness to Svetlana Krakowska, she has much more important things to worry about than talking to journalists from Ireland. But she went to considerable lengths to find decent Wi-Fi, a challenge in Kiev, as you can imagine right now, so that I could ask her about her work. Uh, we were just in uh, at the end uh, of the process of approval of the second uh, working group uh, uh, report on uh, impact uh, and uh, vulnerability to climate change. She's the lead Ukrainian climate scientist on their contribution to the recent report from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. She and her team were within days of completing their work when the bombs started falling. Her first thoughts were of safety, but then she decided, no, this is important. We must continue the work. And they did. Climate change is accelerating and we need to accelerate our measures and our action. I don't, I don't see any reason to live if, if not do uh, this work now for our future, for, for our children. As the war progressed, Svetlana says that she thought more and more how similar the world at two or three extra degrees of warming would be to the war zone that she found herself living in. We now in pain. We're really in pain and we, our soul cries. But it could be the same if we will have the world with higher global warming and we will have these tropical cyclones, we will have much more extreme events and they will diminish our cities. And there is no doubt in her mind that the causes of warming and war are the same thing. Well, I I would say that everything is connected in this world. In fact, this war is connected with climate change directly and directly with these fossil fuels and our addiction to these fossil fuels. From where Svetlana is sitting, she told me that freedom from Putin's tyranny and freedom from fossil fuels were both really the same freedom. And the sooner that we all achieve energy freedom, the sooner she felt that her country would be truly free of Russia's reign of terror. As we talked about how that addiction is funding the war, occasionally the way Svetlana pronounced fossil fuels sounded a little like she was saying fossil fools. I thought about getting her to correct it, but then on reflection, wouldn't fossil fools be a really good name for this episode? I'm Philip Boucher-Hayes and this is Hot Mess. Episode 7, Fossil Fools. How quickly can Ireland wean itself off Russian oil and gas and then all oil and gas? There's a generally accepted fact doing the rounds since the war in Ukraine started that in Ireland we are not either reliant on Russian gas or paying much money for it into the Kremlin's coffers. In the short term um, across Europe they're doing everything they can to get short term uh, supplies in through LNG and other mechanisms. 
This was the Taoiseach of the 30th of March. To reduce their dependence on Russian gas and oil. We are not as dependent on Russian gas and oil as others are. Our primary imports are from the UK and from Norway. Comforting. Except it might not, strictly speaking, be accurate. Effectively, uh, at the moment, okay, it said in the UK that they're only 3% dependent on Russian gas. But that ignores the Russian gas coming through the pipelines from the Netherlands. Jerry Duggan is a fellow at the Irish Academy of Engineering. Relying on the BP, British Petroleum, statistical review of gas imports, the authoritative source on the subject, his analysis suggests that the UK is underselling the figures on its Russian gas dependency. Which means, by extension, we are too, because that is where we get the bulk of our gas. BP, in their annual statistical report for 2020, reported that the UK was dependent on Russian gas for nearly 16% of its gas imports. And the British government says that that figure is actually only 4%. Because they only record in their figures the liquid natural gas that comes shipped directly from Russia. Now the Netherlands is having to import half of its gas requirements. So anything coming from the Netherlands is not originating there. So effectively it's coming from Russia. 16% of UK gas imports are Russian, according to BP. So a smaller but still very considerable proportion of Ireland's will be from Russia too. So in the unlikely event that Europe decided to go cold turkey on Russian gas and oil, or in the more likely event that supply was reduced or cut off, what sort of reserves do we have? Plenty, says the government. We have okay. to focus on and prepare for over the next winter period. But are you, are you confident, for example, that we have a 90-day supply here? Yeah, we have that, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and people needn't be concerned and they shouldn't go out and panic buy? Absolutely not. Again, not strictly speaking completely accurate. We do have 90 days of oil backup, true, but not of gas, and most of our electricity is generated from gas. The gas oil storage at the uh, gas turbine plants is only of the order of five days. There are also issues if you start running those plants on gas oil, you run out of road tanker capacity in the country. Less than a week's storage capacity and not enough road tankers to deliver it. So basically, we need an uninterrupted supply of almost same-day delivery gas if we want to keep the place running. So that doesn't allow us to be too fussy about where it's coming from originally. What though if there was a way to bypass Russian gas? and ship it in from a third country rather than pump it through the pipelines from Britain. We liquefy the gas by cooling it, which shrinks its volume for easier, economical and safe transportation by ship. So how is LNG, liquid natural gas, allows you to do that. Now the purified natural gas, methane with some ethane, is ready to be liquefied. This happens in heat exchangers. A coolant chilled by giant refrigerators absorbs the heat from the natural gas. It cools the gas to minus 162 degrees centigrade, shrinking its volume by 600 times. 
Using high-energy processes, the gas is converted to liquid, transported around the world on boats and turned back into natural gas upon its arrival. When the ship arrives at its destination, the LNG is transferred to a regasification plant where it is heated, returning it to its gaseous state. So LNG might make sense if your electricity is made mainly from gas and you really don't want to buy from Russia. It makes so much sense, in fact, that everyone else has had the same idea, and a lot earlier than us. Uh, 70% of LNG contracts today are already locked into long-term contracts. Um, There is not a lot of spare LNG source supplies out there. Tara Connolly, gas expert with the NGO Global Witness. She says, yes, LNG could theoretically be an alternative, but first Ireland would have to build a very expensive LNG terminal. I know the the LNG terminal in Shannon, the the price or the cost quoted by the, the promoters was 650 million Uh, two years ago when they applied for planning but I think that's probably much closer to a billion now given the cost of commodities has gone up. And did I mention that LNG is also always more expensive than natural gas? And we saw that before the war in Ukraine that there started to become a global bidding war between um, Asia and, and Europe and you know we can win that war but we win it by paying astronomical prices for our gas. Then there's the question of who you are paying for the LNG. They might not be Putin, but given time and more of our money, some of them could be. Uh, If we just simply switch uh, our reliance on gas from Russia to another country like like Qatar, um, well then we have to ask ourselves what is that enabling in terms of the current Qatari government and their uh, questionable history of human rights abuses. Why does it have to be Qatar? Are there not a range of other potential suppliers? Not really, to be honest. There's only a few major LNG exporters. Actually, Russia is one of the biggest LNG exporters. And we're back to square one again. Stranded assets, increased cost, human rights questions, big carbon footprint. LNG might keep the lights on, but at what cost? So by a process of elimination, there's two options left throw everything at renewables or turn off the lights. Not surprisingly, the government has gone with option A. Well, first of all, the war has created a situation where we have to stand back from what business as usual um, and, and reassess the, the short-term measures that we have to take, uh, but then double down on renewables. Double down on renewables. Have we, though? Can we? Can Ireland deliver on its renewable energy targets in double quick time? Again, not exactly. Why not? After the break. Drive time on RT Radio 1. Listen back on the RT Radio Player app. The first industrial scale solar farm in the state came into operation today. It's the future and it's here now. Minister Eamon Ryan seemed positively excited to be able to flick the switch and connect the solar farm to the national grid. Switching to our solar power, our wind power, our own resources, this is a peace project. This is actually creating security in the world because we will never be held for ransom over solar power. At the end of April, Ireland's first large-scale solar farm in Ashford, County Wicklow, was connected to the national grid by Minister Eamon Ryan. It was a good news story. 40 acres of solar panels which will power 3,600 homes. But 
how long it took to get from plans to up and running is not a good news story. What makes the, the length of development a bit more difficult in Ireland than what we can see elsewhere is the, um, the difficulty to get the grid connections, the grid cost and the timeline. Christophe de Platredier from the solar firm NeoN told me that from the moment they identified the site in Ashford to the day that it was turned on had taken seven years. If I was to start this project today in Ireland and today in Spain and today in, say, the Netherlands, which would be built first? I would think in Spain. And how soon would they have it? I would say three and a half years. At best, it would take us five to six years? Five to six years in Ireland. So twice as quick in Spain. Another renewables developer, Nick Holman from BNRG, who operates in Ireland and the United States, says that for projects only slightly smaller than the Ashford one, the planning process in America is literally wrapped up in some states in a matter of minutes. You know, so you've got a set of rules that you need to comply with. You fill, fill in your form, you submit it to the local town and you've got your permit. You know, I think we had one situation in the state of Maine where I think we got our planning permission in 15 minutes. Excuse me? I think we got our planning permission in about 15 minutes. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. You know, so you have to fill in the forms of your studies and then you go in and the town says, OK, where do we sign? Here you go. Our planning permission and grid connection process, by contrast, is interminably slow and subject to objections and lengthy legal appeals all along the way. This government has, it should be acknowledged, recognised how big a problem that is and has started a process of recruiting planning decision makers to key agencies. The landowners here were first approached seven years ago this month and only now, seven years later, is this being hooked up to the grid. What are you doing to reduce that? No, you're right. We do have to accelerate. We're setting up within government new delivery teams, pulling together different departments, pulling together agencies, and doing what we did in COVID, doing what we did in Brexit, showing that same speed and flexibility in how the public service reacts and helps deliver. And we need to do that for climate and for energy security reasons now. Brass tax in human resources terms, that means you have to recruit a lot of decision makers, people with a certain set of skills to onboard Planola, to the SAAI, to Airgrid and to the department. Yeah. Are you able to do that? Yes. There's, this is the economic strategy for the state. So government understands that. They've allocated the likes of the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland we're going from about 120 staff to about 220. And they're coming. They're there. They're already working, a lot of them. Same in my own department. We've had a huge increase in the energy side. We've taken people out of our petroleum affairs division and we've put it into the offshore development side. So we're using the same skills, same skills that were there in how you'd permit for oil and gas, we're now using for how we plan the offshore development. Who would have thought it? the shock troops that Ireland needs to take on Vladimir Putin come in the form of planners. But recruitment is tricky. It's a specialised skill set. It takes a long time to train people up for the job. So for some time yet, the planning system will remain a climate action choke point. There is another issue that stands in the way of doubling down on renewables. 
local and national government are pulling in opposite directions to each other. My name is Brian Kevill. I'm the Environmental Director with MKO. We're planning and environmental consultants specialising in renewable energy, primarily wind, solar and electricity infrastructure. Brian Kevill's research has identified that county councils have made a surprising amount of the country no-go zones for wind energy projects, creating large swathes over the majority of their administrative areas where they won't even consider an application, never mind reject it. So in, in County Kerry, for example, at the moment, 24% of County Kerry would have been classified as being open to consideration for wind energy development or better. Uh, and uh, under the draft policy now uh, that's uh, currently on the table and will most likely come into effect in County Kerry, that 24% of the county is actually going to be reduced to only 3% of the county, uh, which would be classified as being open to consideration for wind energy. It's not just Kerry that hasn't read the memo from Dublin. Up and down the country, the wind strategies of many councils rule out far more land than they rule in. To be clear, this is not the council planners refusing applications because they think that it won't work in that particular location. This is the council saying that wind developers need not apply in the first place. And that's going completely against everything we're hearing from government, everything we're hearing from the EU, and everything we're hearing every day on the news about uh, reducing our uh, dependence on fossil fuels and decarbonising our economy. I asked Kerry County Council for their take on why 97% of the county could now be ruled out of bounds. They told me that they had already allowed for the building of 364 turbines in the county, which makes them among the per capita leaders nationally in green energy generation. This is true. But they then describe the 3% as a significant portion of the county that's open to future development. I've highlighted two bottlenecks in the system here, and I would need a full programme to go through them all. The courts, the grid connections, nimbyism in the planning process and so on, and you would probably get very bored. So let's just shortcut this and answer the main question. How long will it take us to get off all gas, not just Russian, everything? I sat down with energy consultant Peter Hart to figure this out. He's a lot of experience of building large-scale renewable energy infrastructure. And we are, he says, starting from a relatively good place. We're on the way. We're, we're already at 50% of our electricity from renewables, which I think is a very good result. It, it is certainly feasible to get to get to 80% by 2030. That's the current government target. Um, whether we can do it a bit faster than that, um, that's, that's the interesting question. There's a couple of stages to this. First, we need to secure planning permission for and then build a lot more turbines. The source of energy must be built, and that's the essentially offshore wind. And I suppose just in high-level terms, we, we have about 5 gigawatts of wind onshore built to date, and we need to get to about 15 gigawatts to get to close to 100%. Another 10 gigawatts of offshore energy. Currently, there's between 3 and 5 gigawatts at various stages of the planning process, but not actually being built. No matter how good your system is, it takes 5 to 8 years to permit some of these sites, and, and, and you know, a large offshore project is up to 3 years construction. So, you know, we are looking, we're certainly looking at, you know, the, first, the very first offshore projects being on in 2028 or so. You know, you're starting to get the next round in 2030, but to build that full extra 10 gigawatts we mentioned is probably 2032 or so. A decade. But that is only step one. 
Then you need to convert that energy from the wind turbines to a form that it can be stored in. Hydrogen is the most popular and convenient worldwide, but Ireland is practically alone in the developed world in not having a hydrogen strategy. Uh, if we're going to store seasonal volumes of surplus wind, then we need you know, multi-gigawatt scale um, electrolyzers. None of those have been brought forward yet in either planning permission nor, nor indeed is there a policy in place for, for those. Because hydrogen electrolyzing plants are, to all intents and purposes, just big sheds with water and electricity going in at one end and gas coming out at the other, they're relatively easy to get planning for. So theoretically, in the decade that we are constructing 10 gigawatts worth of wind turbines, we could also build hydrogen production facilities simultaneously if we get our skates on. The job is still not done though. We have to build storage for the hydrogen, probably by pumping it into depleted gas wells like Kinsale or by that stage Corrib. Then we have to replace or convert all of our coal, peat and gas electricity generating stations into stations that run on hydrogen. We certainly don't need to build a new power system. You know, we, we, we can use a lot of these power stations. They can be converted to hydrogen. The new ones will be hydrogen ready. I think it's more about whether they're in the right location relative to the to the seasonal seasonal stores of hydrogen. You know, again, and, and those all those seem to be uh, offshore at, at the moment. What Peter is saying is this: if hypothetically you convert a peat-fueled power plant in Lanesborough County, Longford, to hydrogen, that's a good thing because you won't end up with a completely stranded asset, and you're going to create jobs. But you will also need to build a hydrogen gas pipeline separate to your natural gas pipeline network coming from your offshore hydrogen bunker in Kinsale or Corrib all the way to Lanesborough. And gas pipelines from Corrib have, as we all know, proven contentious and time-consuming. And we're still not done. If at the same time an ever larger number of houses start running off heat pumps and charging cars in the driveway, then the electricity grid is going to require an upgrade in a lot of places too. No, there's no doubt we will need, need some new overhead lines and, and, and underground cables to, to deliver it. For comparison purposes, the North-South Interconnector which is essentially just 300 pylons, a relatively small infrastructure project in the scale of what we have to do. This project was supposed to have been completed now 10 years ago, but is still mired in the political doldrums in the face of an immovable opposition campaign. So all in, without any protracted judicial reviews, with total political and public buy-in, if we start tomorrow, the timeline for removing fossil fuels from our energy equation is a minimum 10-year and more likely 15-year project. Hi, Svetlana, how are you? Is everybody still okay? Well, uh, to be honest, uh, not very good, uh, but well, it's... Uh, it's uh, it's about uh, my, uh, you know, family. I called Svetlana Krakowska back in Kiev. Unfortunately, her father had died since we last talked, a non-military or indirect casualty of war. But anyway, I, I, I guess for him and for us, well, it, it, it sounds terrible, 
but in fact it was maybe the easiest way because yeah in this war situation with such elderly people I told her what I had learned while researching this programme, especially that there's probably a lot more Russian gas in our pipelines than official figures suggest, so a lot more money going from Ireland indirectly to the Kremlin than official figures suggest. And I am not surprised that uh, even Ireland uh, have this Russian gas at the very end of this pipe. And I told her it would take up to 15 years to change that. What should we do, I asked her. But I can, uh, my advice will be to read IPCC report, in fact, because for every sector there, is, uh, there are many solutions. Go and read the IPCC reports. It's all in there, she said. Push your government to make the changes that it can make as quickly as possible and reduce your own demand for everything. It's about uh, lifestyle, of course. It's change to lifestyle. Just to think uh, about uh, buying some, uh, some things which maybe not so much uh, need. You said to me before it's also about freedom. Now, I know it's kind of ridiculous to compare Ireland now with Ukraine now, but we have some similar limitations on our freedom because we're still slave to these fossil fuels in the same way that you are. Yeah, in this in this case, we are really in a similar situation. And actually, all nations who are dependent on, on, on fossil fuels, we all uh, have less freedom. The less you need, the more you freedom. So you, the more you're free. So it's it's uh, it's about values of uh, in in life. And actually, in Ukraine, we we were forced to think about these values when uh, many people were forced to flee. They they were thinking what they will put in their handbag, because they cannot put there much more things than they can you know just carry. So it's mm. the way of thinking about the life. What is really well real value in your life. When you have to put everything that really matters into one bag, it must make all of the stuff that we acquire along the way look pretty frivolous. Walking lightly, using less, might sound like a slightly naive way to challenge Putin, but it will work for the even bigger challenge of the climate crisis. If you found this programme interesting, you might like others in the previous series. Is now the time for Ireland to go nuclear? How do you get farmers and environmentalists talking the same language? Who are the vested interests standing in the way of renewables? They're all available for download wherever you get your podcasts. And in the next programme, we're going to be looking at how mining for lithium for car batteries along the Wicklow Way has dragged Ireland into an international security row.